can open in your Bibles tonight to the book of Joshua, chapter 9. Joshua, chapter 9. need a Bible, just lift up your hands and then duck. They're quick, you know. You can also open to John chapter 14 and Deuteronomy chapter uh, 20 and just maybe keep a finger in those places um, so that you can turn there. The verses will be on the screen, but it's good to know where it is in your Bible as well. Perhaps you remember as I do... Growing up and playing sports, whether it would be in your gym class or uh, in some kind of an organized community function, the coaches and the parents would always tell us this one rule, and that was that it doesn't matter if you win or lose, it's how you play the game. And we understood what they were getting at and why they said that, But for us, it was about whether or not we won or lost. And we didn't really care about how we played the game. And I remember it, perhaps you do too, when the coach would say, line up in a line and count off by twos. You knew what was about to happen. The ones would all be on one team, the twos would be on the other, and you would strategically set yourself in a position so that you could be on the team with the best players. Why? Because you wanted to win. You didn't really care about how you played the game. You were interested in being victorious in the outcome of the thing. The same thing would happen when they would pick teams. There would be two captains. And and right away from the very beginning, you would know which of the two you would want to be selected by. And and then as the teams would form, perhaps you'd change your mind as you watched who got who and you you saw the teams and all. Why? Because you wanted to win. You wanted to be on the winning side. Well, the stage for tonight's Bible study is much like that of those who chose sides or, you know, matched up the battle lines drawn. Look with me, Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. Notice what it says. It says, it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland... And in the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with one, uh, with Joshua and Israel with one accord. Now, the children of Israel have just defeated and dethroned two of the kings of the land. Jericho, the walls fell down and Israel took over. Ai now has fallen before Israel and the people thereof. They've just come from a time of consecration, rededication, uh, a time away, hearing again the covenant, the words of Moses that were given, a a retreat, if you would. And, And while they are retreating, or being refreshed and refilled, hearing again what they're called to do, the enemies of God are making an alliance. These kings of the land, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Canaanites, all of those that were to be disposed and dethroned, they realize 
that the enemy that they are facing poses a credible threat and that war is inevitable. And so what they do is they realize that our strength is in numbers. And so they send out the message and they form a confederacy. All of the kings of the land come together and they unify their armies so that they can come against Israel with the strength of all rather than being disposed of one at a time as they had seen with Jericho and Ai. And that sets the stage for our Bible study. The teams are picked up. We have Joshua and the children of Israel on one side, on one team. And we have the Canaanite peoples with their kings all in alliance against them on the other. The battle lines are drawn. Someone's going to stand. Someone's going to fall. There's going to be a winner in this battle. The same lines are drawn between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness in our world that we live in today. There are two teams, essentially. On one side, you have Jesus and the people of God. And on the opposing side, you have Satan and the forces of evil and of darkness. The battle that is fought behind those lines is not for land like it was for the children of Israel in Joshua's day, but rather the battle is for souls. The battleground is not cities, it's souls. The spoils are life or death, and there is also weaponry or a force that is employed by each side. For Jesus, for the people of God, the force that's employed in our war is truth. The weapon of our war is truth. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That was his bold declaration that declared who he was and what his mission was and what he came to give. He said, I am the way. That is, I am a side in this war. There are two ways and I am the way. Then he said that my force is the truth. I am the truth and it will lead to life. I am the life. And so on Jesus' side, the force is truth, and the result is life. It's what he wants to give. He also said in John uh, chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said this to, to us, to his people. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, my followers. And he said, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And so we find that the objectives of the Lord and those that are on his side is that there would be truth and that that truth would lead to both life and that that life would also be lived in freedom. That that's the desire, the agenda, the motivation, and the battle plan really as it is on the side of the Lord. Now on the other side, on Satan's side of this battle line, that's about to take place? Well, his force is not truth, but his force is lies. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said it this way. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus tells us that Satan also has a side in this war. That his strategy and his force that he seeks to employ in winning this war is lies. That he's a deceiver, the father of deception, and that his end goal in what he seeks to accomplish in fighting against the Lord is murder and death, which is the opposite of life and freedom, which we see uh, in the heart of and in the battle plan of the Lord. So what are the objectives in this war? For Satan, John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said, the thief cometh not but to kill, to steal, and destroy. That's Satan's objective in the battle. What's Jesus' objective? The second half of that verse, John chapter 10, verse 10, the second half. Jesus said, I am come that you may have life. And here's how you have life in the Lord. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. John writes and he says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. There's a battle. It's a battle of truth versus lies. It's a battle for souls. And the outcome is life or death. There is an outcome, and I've got good news for you. We know what it is. In the end, guess who wins? Jesus. Jesus wins. We know absolutely that Jesus wins in the end this outcome. The Bible's filled with that declaration. You don't even have to read the book of Revelation to find it. It's prophesied ahead of time. And we know that there's no force that can stand before the Lord and his kingdom. And here's the good news. Is that he calls as many as are willing to come to be a part of his team. Then anyone who wants, you don't have to be chosen against your will to be on one side or the other, but you get to choose which team you want to be on. And not only do you win if you are on the Lord's team, but you also get to enjoy the benefits of having him as the captain and having his resources at your disposal. So the question is, right at the onsite of our Bible study, whose side are you on? Everyone chooses a side. No one gets to be a spectator in this war because the war is for souls. And if you are a soul, then you are a part of this battle. And therefore, you are either on the side of Jesus, who with truth gives life and freedom, or you are on the side of Satan and you've been lied to. And in the process, he is murdering and destroying you, making you nothing. Well, Maybe you're here tonight and you say, you know what? I think I might be on the wrong side. I might be not serving Jesus. I might be on Satan's team. Well, I'm glad if that's you because this is what happens in our story tonight is that a group of people realize that they're fighting on the wrong team, that they can't win the battle that they're facing and we'll see what happens to them. And so uh, as we go through our study, we see four things really Uh, First of all, we have the grand defection. Then we have the grand deception. Then we have the defense against deception. And then finally, the outcome and the results of all as we see how the Lord works through all of these different things. But the first thing that we notice here as we pick up in verse 3 is the grand defection. Notice with me verse 3. It says, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon, 
Gibeon was one of the cities there in the land, the cities of the Canaanites, the Hivites actually were the Gibeonites. And it says that when they heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, that they worked craftily and they went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond Jordan to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours, we took hot for our provisions from our houses on the day that we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which we filled, were new. And see, they are torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Now, the people of the land, the Canaanites, the enemies of God. To this point, they have dug their heels in in defiance against God. He'd given them 400 years to repent. They knew who he was. They knew what was required of them and what was available to them. And they persisted in hardness, in impenitence, and in rebellion against him for all of that time. They hated him, they hated his people, and they've come to the point where they're out of room. Judgment is pending. Their hearts have been hardened. Jericho, we found, was afraid, but they were defiant. They wouldn't come out, they didn't seek peace, they did nothing, but they sat like scaredy cats, in their rebellion and waited for the walls of the city to fall. Ai, also defiant against the Lord, they were reckless and dumb. They left their city completely and allowed an ambush to come in from the back, and and, and they were overthrown completely. And now, as these six confederate peoples, led by their kings, as they now realize that you know, hey, we've got to unite, we've got to fight against them. There's one group among them that realizes we can't win this war. That no matter how good our strategy is, no matter how well equipped we are, no matter how large a confederacy we have, there's no way that we're going to be able to stand before these 
people. And so they make a decision. They realize that there's only one decision for them to make. It's the decision of life or death. We either dig in our heels and die with these people, or we come up with a plan and figure out a way to live. And so they choose life. But they go about it in a very interesting way, a very dramatic way. And it's a way that reveals something both about the heart and the nature of men, but it also reveals something about the heart and the nature of our Father, of God. It tells us there in verse 3 that they came craftily. The word craftily means having a false motive. The best definition for it in the Bible is when the people came to Jesus seeking to deceive him and they asked him a question about whether it was lawful uh, to behave in a certain way and, and yet they were seeking to trap him in his words. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they knew that they had him either way. If he said yes, then he was guilty of defecting from the Jews. And if he said no, he was guilty of defecting from Rome. And so they had him. And it says that Jesus perceived their craftiness. That is that they weren't coming sincerely seeking the answer for the right thing to do, but they were seeking to trap him in his words. It was a false motivation. These men, the Gibeonites, they come to Joshua craftily. They have a false motivation. Their rationale, their reason for coming is something other than what it appears to be on the surface. Now, their motive is a noble one. They wanted to save their lives. You and I, we might have done the same thing had we been in their shoes, realizing, you know, what we were facing. They wanted to save their lives. So here's what they do. They do some homework. Somehow, they get a copy of God's law. They might have walked over, wandered over to Mount Ebal, where it had just been plastered on two large stones by Joshua himself, and they began to read and find out exactly what it was that Joshua was to do. And I'm sure, based on what they did, they understood what Moses wrote, Deuteronomy chapter 20. In verse 10, it says, To the children of Israel, when you go near to a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. They'll pay taxes. They will be servants of you. But there's a catch down in verse 15. He says, thus you shall do this. You shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations, the Canaanites, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, which were the Gibeonites, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God had commanded you. And so they do some homework and they realize that God made provision for his people to make a covenant with their enemies if those people came from a very far country. And so they craft this plan and they grab moldy bread and they grab old clothes and cracked wineskins and torn shoes tattered and they put dirt upon their faces and they made the 25-mile journey 
a three-day journey by foot if you only travel, you know, maybe eight hours a day or something like that. And they walk over to the place where Joshua and the children of Israel camped and, and they realize, they come and they pretend to be something that they are not. And so this defection of the Gibeonites against the Canaanites becomes the grand deception as they now come to Joshua and rehearse this matter that they have so carefully uh, crafted before him. And so they come to him, they pretend to be something they're not. First of all, they come and they pretend to be worthy. We are ambassadors. Though our appearance wouldn't lend itself to that description because of the distance and the ardor of our journey. Yet we are very professional people. Uh, as ambassadors, we are a very productive part of our citizenry and our, and our government. And we are very presidential in what it is that we are seeking to do now that we are here among you. And, and we are a delegation that's been sent from a government from a far land. Not only are we a very worthy people, but we also are showing you through our appearance and what you can see that we are very willing to work to make this covenant happen that we're willing to work to within an inch of our lives we are almost dead look at our provisions they're dried up we've traveled so far and we've come because we want to make this work no matter what but it's only in appearance that they come to joshua this same thing happens with people who defect from the kingdom of darkness and seek to come to the kingdom of light even today. People come to God thinking that they can, by deceiving the people of God, also deceive God. And so they come to God in much the same way that these ambassadors, so-called, came to Joshua and to his people. They come to God and they come as though they're very worthy. God, you're getting a really good deal with me. I know that, that, that I'm not really you know, supposed to be in the kingdom of darkness. I know that the kingdom of darkness won't win. And so, God, I'm going to come into your house, and I want to serve you. And so I'm going to come uh, uh, to you in this way. And so they come to church, and they put on a religious facade, but they never really come to Christ. They, they want the benefit of being saved from hell. But they don't want the life of giving their all and surrendering all to Jesus. And so they put on a facade. They put on a covering, an appearance, as though that they are very worthy people. They learn the Christian language. They say, praise the Lord with elegance and class, as though they say it all the time. They say, hallelujah, brother. And they come to church and they'll raise their hands and they'll bring their Bibles and maybe even wear the t-shirts or put the bumper stickers on. But, but, but inwardly, there's been no real change. It's just a facade, something that's seen on the outside but isn't an outgrowth of something real that's happened on the inside. And so it's, you know, you look at them and there's no inward change. You look at their life and they still eat the old bread. They're still feeding on the old substance that comes from the world. They're still clothed with the rags of unrighteousness rather than the new rags that come through the righteousness that comes in Jesus Christ. Their shoes are old and cracked. They still walk in the paths of darkness. They haven't had their feet shod with the 
boots of salvation that Jesus gives to his people, there's oldness. There's something about it that isn't right. And you look at them and they behave the same way in secret that caused the conviction that brought them to the Lord in the first place. There's no change in their life at all. It's only a facade. They don't want the world to know that they're coming to church. And they don't want the church to know that they're still living in the world. They're living a life of deception. They're they're living a lie. Now, here's the problem with that, is that you can deceive people with a facade. You can talk a certain way, dress a certain way, behave a certain way, do certain things, and you can deceive people into thinking that you're something you're not. But you cannot and you will not ever deceive God. He sees right to the very core of everyone that lives. All things, the Bible says, are naked and opened before the eyes of him before we deal, with whom we deal. You cannot hide what you really are from God. And so eventually what happens with those people, those Gibeonites that defect, they don't want to go to hell, but they're not ready to give their lives to Christ, two things happen. Number one, eventually it doesn't work. The conviction, the guilt, the death, the anxiety, the fear that they were seeking to escape doesn't really leave. Because change behavior can never produce inward transformation. Outward makeovers can never do inside the life what only God can do. And so the the thing that brought them and made them come doesn't work. And so ultimately they say, "Ah, I can't do that anymore. Or the second thing that happens is that the truth ultimately comes out. They get caught in the thing that they haven't turned away from. They're branded and labeled as a hypocrite, and then they turn their back completely. And when you come to them and you say, hey, you need to get right, they say, I tried the Jesus thing. It didn't work for me. No, no, no. You didn't try the Jesus thing. You tried the church religious reformation behavioral thing and and the hypocrisy thing and the appearance thing. But did you ever give your life to Christ? Did you ever come to him on the terms that he said and that he invited us to freely come to him? Because he says that to anyone who invites him inside, he will begin a work in their life, changing them from the inside out, conforming them into the image of his son, dispelling the works of darkness and setting them on the path of light that leads to life. And he'll do that for anyone that comes to him. But you didn't come that way. You came craftily thinking that by deceiving the people of God, you could also deceive the God of those people. And it doesn't work that way. You can't do it. You can't lie to God. He knows what you are. And rather than causing terror and conviction in you, that should cause great comfort in you. Because if he knows what we are, and yet he's still willing to receive us and accept us, then how gracious does that make him? Psalm chapter 103, verse 14, says it like this. It says that he, our Father, considers our frame and he knows that we are but dust. He knows what you are. He knows the secret desires of your heart. He knows the hidden sins that you struggle with, that you seek to be free from, but that have a hold on you. He knows the inner workings of what makes you tick and how you think. He's aware of all those things. He considers your frame, but as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him. And Those things won't keep him from accepting you. If you'll come to him on his terms, he'll receive you and he'll change you by his power. So what does this reveal about the heart of man, this deception that the Gibeonites bring? It 
proves this, Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, and who can know it? Did you hear what God just said about you? Did you hear what he said about me? He looks at the human condition, he looks into our hearts, and he says, all I see there is desperate wickedness and self-deception. They don't even know how bad they are. They really believe that by me choosing them that, I, that, that I'm getting a good deal. They really think that there's something of worth in them, that there's something deep inside that I see looking at them that I'm saying, you know what, I, they might not know it yet, but I know they've got great potential. They really believe that, God says. But that's not the case. He looks into our hearts, into our lives, and he sees nothing there but filthy defilement. And because of his great love and his great mercy, he made provision for that to be washed away. In fact, such great love and such great mercy was it that he chose to trade places with you and receive the punishment that your sin deserved so that he could give to you the righteousness that he only possesses as a gift not as something that you can earn or work for or try to put on to trick him or trick people. It's a transformation of the heart that comes from grace, from God. But it reveals that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. They thought they were pretty good, these people. Hey, our trick, our craft, our deception that we're bringing to Joshua, it's going to impress him. Yeah, he's going to find out eventually, but we'll have the contract then, and it won't matter at all. You know, it's interesting to me that ultimately, these people who thought they were so great, they're going to agree to become slaves to the children of Israel, slaves to the people of God. That means that what they knew about themselves really is that, hey, okay, we can either, you know, die as what we are, or we can become slaves for God. Okay, we'll choose slaves for God. That's a good deal. That's how bad they are. They realize it's a good deal for us to be slaves for God rather than to be what we think we are, what we think we deserve. Well, here's what happens. They haven't come to God honestly, but God's going to do something. Look with me again at verse 14. It says, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. They buy into this deception, and they make an agreement, a peace treaty with the Gibeonites in the name of the Lord. They swear to them by the name of the Lord, as though God's the one whose signature is on the covenant. We will not kill you. They buy it. How does deception happen to the people of God? Joshua and the rulers of Israel are deceived here. They buy into this hook, line, and sinker. They see the presentation. They observe. They think through everything that's happened. They don't even think it's necessary to ask counsel of God, so convinced are they. And then they give into it, and they're deceived. How are the people of God deceived? There's a progression here, something that happens that serves as a warning for you and me. First of all, to consider, remember where they're coming from. They just came from a retreat. They just came off the mountaintop. They just had an incredible victory. They conquered AI with an incredible slaughter. Their strategy worked. They rededicated themselves to God, and they didn't even realize that while they were in that place of rededication, 
of retreat and renewal and revival, the enemy was formulating a plan against them. That's number one. If the enemy can get us to become overconfident because of a spirit filling that we have or because of gifts perhaps or perhaps a victory that we face, once we're overconfident, we become vulnerable and set up. The second thing that he does, which the Gibeonites did to the children of Israel, is that he hides his true identity. When Satan is seeking to deceive you, he never comes to you and tells you who he is. When you're standing with the used car salesman, and there's a shiny coat of paint, and that thing has been dolled up, and the tires are blackened, and the interior smells new, and it starts right up, he doesn't have a label on his shirt that says satan trying to make you buy something that's a piece of garbage you know he he doesn't do that he's wiser than that you know that really nice looking guy on the beach who claims to be a christian and is the answer to all of my prayers he doesn't have a tattoo that says i'm actually satan just wait till you say i do you know He always hides his identity and seeks to make you forget that he's a true and real force that's trying to draw you away from the things of God so that somehow he can damage your soul and ruin your life. That's the desire of Satan. And so he'll seek to hide his identity as these do here. The next thing that Satan will always do is try to get a person, and if he can do this, he's done great, <laughs> he he causes cell phones to go off at very inopportune times <laughs> to get our minds off the word you know it's it's a sneaky ploy really if he can get the people of god to look at facts instead of faith or science instead of turning to the spirit then he's made great headway in deceiving the people of God. Satan always operates in facts. The Bible and God's kingdom always operates by faith. And when we make decisions or do things based only upon the facts and what is seen outwardly, and we don't consult the all-knowing God who sees all things and will tell us spiritually, then we're on the road to deception. Everything lined up in what these people were presenting. I mean, even their words, when they said that we heard what the Lord your God did to Sihon and Og and to Pharaoh in Egypt, they didn't mention Jericho and Ai. Had they mentioned Jericho and Ai, that would have been the red flag right there. I mean, this was so spot on that Joshua and the children of Israel just said, this is a no-brainer. This is one of those decisions that we can make in our sleep. It's so easy. We know what we're supposed to do. And it says that they looked at some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And any time a Christian looks at facts, but doesn't lean upon faith and talk it over with the Father, you might be in a place where you are headed for deception. The last thing that I notice here, and Satan is so good at this, is that he brings the Lord into it. Us Christians, we have a weakness. When someone starts talking about the Lord, and we think that they're on our team, on our side, we immediately let our guard down. They said, because of the name of the Lord, and his great power, and what he did, we, we know, and, and they just said, oh, 
Do you do that? I know I do that. Oh, you're a Christian? I'm a Christian too, brother. How are you? Let me show you a car. I've got one just for you. This is the Christian special, you know. No, he's a Christian. Lord, confirmation. You must be leading this, you know. We do that, don't we? But we don't ask counsel from the mouth of the Lord. And that's so important that we do so that we're not, you know, deceived. And these guys fall for all of it and they buy it. So what's the defense? What is the Christian's defense against deception? Number one is never violate the word of God. They had a clear directive from the Lord said multiple times through Moses just a couple of months before this that they were not to make a covenant with the people of the land. And that alone should have caused them to further investigate the source of this speech that was coming from these men. Joshua asks the question twice, where are you from? But two times, these guys play the politician and they don't answer the question. Where are you from? Oh, let me answer that by asking you this. You know, and, and they, do the, they do the politician thing and, and Joshua kind of forgets when they start talking about the Lord the question that he had asked, and he doesn't do due diligence to find out what's really going on. God will never lead you somewhere where the word of God prohibits you. If the Bible says don't, God never will say do. If the Bible sets parameters, God will never lead you on the outside of those walls. It's, it's a given. And so it fits us to be familiar with this book, to know what God tells us to do, because it's our guide in knowing truth from error. Don't violate the word of God. Number two is never go against your peace. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, the apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he said, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The word rule is where we get the word umpire or referee. And he says that the peace of God that's in you is that umpire. In other words, when it's time to make a decision, or when someone's trying to sell you a bill of goods, or perhaps Satan is setting you up for the perfect deception, God has placed a peace in you that comes through Christ. It's already there. Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. You have the peace of God. But when you are doing something or walking a direction or believing something that is a lie from the enemy, the Bible says that God, the spirit in you, the referee of his peace will say, wait, hold on a minute. That happens here in the text. Joshua says twice, hey, wait, I'm not sure about this. He has a check in his spirit about whether this is the right thing or not, but he doesn't listen to that peace. And any time that you violate that peace, you're going to live to regret it. What do you do when your peace leaves you in a situation? The answer is pray. You pray. You take it immediate to the Lord and you ask him to give you wisdom. James chapter 1 verse 5 says that if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom is knowing what to do. That's what wisdom is. So if you don't know what to do, the Bible says let him ask of God who gives to all liberally. In other words, God's waiting for you to ask him for wisdom. He's waiting for you to ask him what to do. And the Bible says that if you ask him in faith, believing that he's going to direct your steps, he's going to lead you. In Psalm 1, uh, I think it's, no, it's Psalm 37. It says that the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. 
It's not the blocks. It's not the leaps, the days, or the months. It's the steps. He wants to lead you every step that you take. But we're to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge him. And the Bible says he will direct our paths, make them straight. It's his desire for us. But he tells us to ask. Never go against your peace. And then number three is always ask. Ask the Lord. If you're in doubt, ask him, and, and he will. Now, here's what happens, is that a lot of people don't ask the Lord. And the reason they don't ask the Lord is not because they forget and not because they don't believe that he'll tell them what to do. It's because they don't want to hear what he has to say. Lord, this just looks so good. And you know I've been waiting on you so long for a spouse. And I know this is a huge decision, but this is perfect. It's everything that I prayed for. Handsome, tall, money, good car, a house. I mean, this is my whole checklist, Lord, and here it is now. What if I pray and God says no? I don't want him to say no. What if he's not the right one? I don't care. I want him, you know. Have you, have you been in that situation? You know, maybe it's not a spouse, but maybe it's a house, or maybe it's a car, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a move, maybe, maybe it's a pair of sneakers, you know. But do you seek the Lord? Do you ask him? He knows what's coming down the pike next year. He knows what our lives are going to look like in 10 years, two decades from now. And his desire is to lead you into a place where you can say about your life, Lord, you truly give the abundant life. But if you don't consult him, seek him, follow his leading, obey when he tells you yes or no, then you might find yourself somewhere someday where you say, how did I get here, Lord? And he'd say, I don't know. You didn't seek me. And so that's our defense against deception. Don't violate his word. Don't violate your peace. Always ask him for the wisdom that you need. Well, what's the result of all this? What's the outcome? How does God take this whole debacle, this mess, this defection of the Gibeonites that was mixed with faith, though it was corrupted, this deception that's laid upon Joshua and the people of Israel, and now the confusion that it's going to bring to their goals and their objective, how does God work this whole thing out? Notice with me in verse 16. It says, it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Cherepheth, Beeroth, and Kirjath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel and all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. The first outcome of this whole thing that happened, but that God allowed, is that there was the salvation of sinful people. This whole thing resulted in the salvation of sinful people. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. The prophet, speaking in the spirit, says, 
of the Lord or from the Lord, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of him who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. And then he goes one step further in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, and he says this, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? I told you earlier that this whole thing reveals something about the heart of man, but that it also reveals something about the heart of God. Here's the heart of God, is that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked is that he doesn't rejoice in judgment. He doesn't look forward to it. He doesn't rejoice when someone runs out of room. They've come to the end of a sinful path, and now it's time for him to interject and do something about it because of the sake of what it's going to do to his people or to his name or his reputation. He doesn't rejoice in that at all. His heart is always that someone would turn. And what this reveals about the heart of God is that he is willing to receive even the worst sinner even to the point of his judgment right before him or the point before their death. Is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That him that believes would never be ashamed, but that him that is a sinner would turn from his sinful ways and live. That God will save those that will come to him. It's true. That the children of Israel, I mean, the, the, the rulers of Israel made a terrible decision in this. They were totally deceived. But it's also true that God was in it. That he saw in these people faith. There was something in them that they said, we don't care what it's going to cost us in the eyes of those of the land. We're going to join the team of the Lord because we know that we're going to win. And God saw that they had faith enough to believe that he was powerful, that he was real, and that they were willing to give their lives. And they're going to. They're going to give their lives completely to him. And so this results in the salvation of sinners. It also results in servants for the sanctuary. Look with me at verse 22. It says, Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you, when you actually dwell near us? Joshua is always going to confront those that seek to deceive him. Not just Joshua in the text, but Yahshua, Jesus. You can come to him and you can put on a religious facade. Or you can come to church thinking that you can come to church on Sunday and live for God, but then go back into the world the rest of the week and live for Satan. And it's all going to work out. Listen, eventually Jesus is going to come and confront that issue. He's going to call you to task about what you've been doing and reveal to you what's in your heart. And here we see Joshua doing it here with them. Why did you deceive us? Now, therefore, verse 23, you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. 
And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Now Joshua follows a very bad move with a very wise move. See, the concern of God in telling them not to make a covenant with the people of the land was that the people of the land would ultimately corrupt the people of God. That God's people would see their ways, their behaviors, follow suit, and that it would bring judgment upon Israel. That's why God ordered their annihilation. So here's what Joshua does because now he's in a pickle. He can't kill these people because he's sworn in the name of the Lord and he doesn't want wrath to come upon them. But he doesn't want them to corrupt the people of Israel either. So here's what he does. Is that he puts them as close to the influence of God as he can. He makes them servants and slaves in the temple. Where they're going to hear scripture constantly. Where they're going to be very intimate with the sacrificial system. And what sin is and what sin cost. And what sin was ultimately looking forward to. And God sending the Lamb of God to be the propitiation for the sins of the world. And so Joshua puts them in this place, and here's the amazing thing, is that there's no record in all of Israel's history of the Gibeonites bringing corruption upon the children of Israel. God honored it. In fact, the Gibeonites were so faithful to Israel that they were their servants even up to the captivity, and even after the captivity, the Gibeonites came back to Israel with the Jews and helped them rebuild the city and the wall. Is that these people became faithful servants of the sanctuary. In other words, the kingdom of God was strengthened. Sinners were saved, and God's objectives were fortified or strengthened by these people who would ultimately serve him. They became his servants. It's interesting. Sometimes I think, wow, Lord, it's pretty cool that you put me in the ministry. And then I think, wait. <laughs> You put the Gibeonites in the ministry so that they wouldn't corrupt people, you know. <laughs> it's true, those that serve the Lord are those that oftentimes are those that are the most faithful to the Lord. And here we see Joshua putting them in the employment, and we see that these people are glad to receive it. They're glad to have their identity erased and to be absorbed into that of the people of God. Interesting. And then the last thing that happens, it, it happens actually in the next chapter, in chapter 10, the result of this is the advancement of the kingdom. Here's what happens, and this is just a kind of a, a foreshadowing of what's to come in chapter 10. The Gibeonites defect. They change teams. They leave the armies of Canaan. They join the armies of God. And here's what happens, is that the attention of those confederate Canaanite heathen kings turns away from Israel and onto the Gibeonites. Satan, if you would, looks at the person who turned to God and he says, I'm going to get them. They turned and went over there. We'll get, deal with them later. Let's deal with the Gibeonites first. And so these kings that allied against Israel come against Gibeon. And here's what happens, is that Gibeon makes a phone call. They send an SOS to Joshua at Gilgal and they said, hey, you made a treaty with us. We are surrounded by our enemies. Come and help us. And here's what happens. Joshua comes and helps. See, when you're on the Lord's side, you get the Lord's resources. He comes to your aid. Yes, if you defect, 
If you turn from the power of darkness and turn to the king of righteousness, you're going to be attacked. No king rightfully loses his subjects. And Satan will not stand by while you defect and turn to Jesus. He will attack. But here's the good news is that Jesus is more powerful than Satan and all of his resources are at your disposal and he will defend you against your enemy. And here's the outcome of it, is that Israel goes to the defense of Gibeon and all of those kings are going to be destroyed and the kingdom of God is gonna move forward. You see how God works all things together for good? It's a deception that's turned into a victory. And that's what happens. Listen, you cannot stop the kingdom of God. You can't stop his purposes, his will, his desires. He wins. He always wins. Every time. I said at the beginning of this study that there's no one that wants to be on the losing side of anything. We have an incredible advantage in this choosing of sides and picking of teams and that we know which team's going to win. And every one of us can be on the winning side. Let me ask you, Which side are you on? Whose side are you on? Father, we thank you so much for this word tonight. We thank you for this chapter that teaches us so much truth. It asks us a pointed question. It calls us to account of our lives, to search, to look within, and to examine what we really are. Have we truly come to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Have we cast our lot with Jesus and the people of God? Or are we perhaps like Gibeonites, still wearing old clothes, carrying old wineskins, wearing old shoes, walking an old path, but yet seeking in some way by deceiving ourselves to deceive you also? Lord, I pray that tonight would be a night that you would search each one of us with that question. And I pray, Father, that every one of us here would see you with open arms, willing, ready, desiring that we should be yours. And I pray tonight, Lord, for any that are here that are deceived. They've bought into the lie of Satan who seeks to kill, to steal, and destroy. They've believed that God is really against them. That God is seeking to impose his will upon their life that God is seeking to restrict them, that he is trying to keep them from enjoying something, and they've believed it. I pray that tonight, Lord, you would pierce through the darkness of that lie with your glorious light, and that you would let the sinner see that you stand with open arms, willing, ready, and wanting to receive all that will turn to you, and that your heart is not filled with judgment, your eyes are not angry, but with perfect love, you receive those who come. And so willing, Lord, were you to show that love that you sent your son, that you gave your one and only son, and his blood was shed upon a cross, and his life was laid down in exchange for our souls. And so we pray, Father, that we would be reminded again of who it is that we serve, and what it is that you do, and where it is that we're headed. For those that are deceived, Lord, let tonight be the night that they choose life. We thank you so much, Father, for teaching us, for your faithfulness to lead us, for your word that instructs us and guides us. We pray that as you promised, you would continue to lead us in paths of righteousness 
for your name's sake. Help us, Father, that we would walk step by step with you, not to the right or to the left, that we wouldn't lean upon our own understanding, but that in all our ways we'd acknowledge you and you would direct our steps. Thank you for this word. In Jesus' name. Before I say amen, perhaps you're here tonight and you say, you know, I, I really think maybe I am on the wrong side. I, I'm in church, but I'm not in Christ. I've put on the facade, but I haven't yet come to him in reality. The Bible says that if you haven't entered into him through blood covenant, that is the covenant of his son, if you haven't received him into your heart and made him the Lord and Savior of your life, that you abide in the place of darkness and death. He doesn't want that for you. He loves you so much that not only did he send his son for you with your face in mind thousands of years before you were born, but he brought you here tonight to hear this message and to have it impressed upon your heart that he's a God of truth, a God of judgment, but a God of love. And there will come a day when everyone will come to account And eventually, you will run out of room. And he would call you to himself. I want to give you an opportunity tonight to receive Christ. If you have yet to defect from the side of Satan and come to Jesus Christ, tonight might be the night. The Bible says, to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Did you hear that? Not the servants like the Gibeonites. Not the hewers of wood and the carriers of water, but the sons and daughters of the true and the living God. Here's what he's going to do in your life. The Bible says that he's going to come and he's going to move inside. And he's going to place his Holy Spirit there and he's going to begin a work in you of transformation. Changing you from what you are right now into something that's totally brand new. It says if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And then the Bible says that he's going to come and he's going to walk with you. That he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That you'll experience his presence, his peace, his guidance. His word will make sense to you. And you'll begin to live a life that he calls the abundant life. And he promises that he'll never leave you or forsake you all the days of your life. And that that what he starts he's going to complete. But it starts here. It starts with a decision that you make to say, I no longer want to walk in passive darkness and I want to walk in passive light. So here's what you do. Lori's going to start to play. The musicians are going to sing. And you just get up out of your seat and come forward. Yeah, come forward and come stand right here. And make a public, open declaration to God and say, God, I need you. I want to follow you. I need to be saved. I want to be redeemed. And then we'll pray. I'm going to pray for you. Then I'm going to lead you in a prayer where you're going to give your heart and your life to God. And he's going to do what he said he's going to do. He's going to come inside your life and he's going to make you brand new. He's going to wash you clean. And this is the night. God brought you here for this. And you know it. Lori's going to play as she does. Come, don't be afraid. Lori, 